Okay, y'all, what we're going to be doing this summer um, for our study, and let me, let me just encourage you that um, uh, it's my intention that this be a very laid-back time uh, and a very laid-back study. Uh, but during the summer times, I like to do the sort of stuff that I don't think I can necessarily get away with during the, uh, uh, during the regular school year because there's not a chance to sort of interact and ask questions. <laughs> um, and so that's kind of my intention. I like to do topics that maybe are a little more esoteric, maybe require a little more thoughtfulness and things like that. Um, uh, and typically I find myself being drawn to uh, the book of Genesis. Uh, the reason why is because it deals with human origins. But I want to sort of put a finer point on it uh, than that as we discuss this whole topic. Y'all, what I want to do this summer for, I think, six sessions. We got June and maybe the first or second uh, Wednesday in July, but I'll keep you uh, aware of that as we go along. I want to look at the role that stories play in what it means to be a Christian. That's my premise. Now, I recognize for many of you, you're kind of like, <laughs> okay, good. Um, so I don't have to come back the rest of the summer. That's what you're telling me. Um, but bear with me for a second because I want to try to unpack this in a way. Uh, it would be hard for me to explain how big a deal it was for, me to, for someone to introduce this concept to me uh, because it gave me a category to think about what it means for me to be a Christian in everyday life more than a lot of other things that I've stumbled across in my 16 years of ordained uh, ministry. And it's the simple idea of story and how important stories are. Okay, so in introducing that, somebody read for me, if you wouldn't mind, Genesis chapter 1. We'll read the first two verses of the Bible. Uh, this ought to be the easiest thing for anybody to find. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Who could read that out for me if anybody's got it? Uh, thanks. Have at it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Okay, a couple of years ago in this very living room, Ginger and I had this uh, notion to read together uh, at night rather than sort of vegging in front of the television as we do now. Uh, we decided we would redeem our time together by reading uh, out loud. And I kind of like to read out loud. And we decided that we were going to go through the Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you've ever read through the Lord of the Rings, but you know there's kind of this cultic following of people who have read them and enjoyed them, probably to the point where if you're one of the people that have not read it, you hate people who have because of how much they go on and on about it. Well, I had an experience um, while Ginger and I were reading uh, the Lord of the Rings out loud together that provided the sort of experiential basis for our, dis our topic this summer, Okay. And this was what we read. And I know that it's kind of bad uh, teaching methodology to read to people, but it's part of a story, and so perhaps you can enjoy it for this. Uh, this little scene that I'm going to read from The Lord of the Rings takes place right after Sam and Frodo, you know, Frodo, the great hero, uh, are rescued from the exploding fires of Mount Doom, having thrown the ring of power into the thing and destroying it. It's kind of at the very end of the story, okay? And this, is, this was where something happened to me during this part here. Bear with me. When Sam awoke, he found that he was lying on some soft bed. But over him gently swayed wide beechen boughs, and through their young leaves sunlight glimmered green and gold. All the air was full of a sweet mingled scent. He remembered that smell. It was the fragrance of Ithilien. Bless me, he mused. How long have I been asleep? For the scent had brought him back to the day when he had lit his little fire under the sunny bank. 
And for the moment, all else between was what was out of waking memory. He stretched and drew a deep breath. Why, what a dream I've had, he muttered. I am glad to wake. He sat up and then saw that Frodo was lying beside him and slept peacefully, one hand behind his head and the other resting upon the coverlet. It was the right hand, and the third finger was missing. Full memory flooded back, and Sam cried aloud, It wasn't a dream. Then where, where, then where are we? A voice spoke softly behind him, In the land of Athelion, and in the keeping of the king, and he awaits you. With that, Gandalf stood before him, robed in white, and his beard now gleaming like pure snow in the twinkling of the leafy sunlight. Well, Master Samwise, how do you feel, he said. But Sam lay back and stared with open mouth. And for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he couldn't answer. At last, he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then, I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? The great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. But he himself burst into tears. Then, as a sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring, and the sun will shine out the clear, his tears ceased, and his laughter welled up. And laughing, he sprang from his bed. Now, you may not find that little piece of prose all that interesting, especially if you're not familiar with The Lord of the Rings. But suddenly, while I was reading this, I was reading out loud to Ginger, sitting at that very chair right there, I began to cry uncontrollably. Especially when I got to Sam's realization, because Sam had thought that Gandalf was dead. And Gandalf was much beloved, and they had been through incredible adventures, but very much apart from each other. And it's the first time in all three of the books that they had been rejoined together. And for some inexplicable reason, I could not regain control over my senses. I'll be honest with you, I had to swallow a couple times even reading it right now, because it still kind of wells up. I'll be honest with you, I have tried for years to understand what in the world happened to me. Because here's the thing, I think Ginger would say this, that never happens to me. I'm not sort of the weepy type, uh, if you will. Um, And for a long time I struggled with what in the world was going on. What I want to pitch at you tonight as a way of introduction is that what I was experiencing all those years ago was the power of a story. That's my pitch. And I simply want to pitch to you that this idea of story is absolutely central to understanding what it means for you to be a human being, to understand how God relates to your world, and to understand, therefore, what it means to be a Christian. Did you catch that? I want you to understand what it means to be a human being, to understand what it means for God to relate to you, and number three, what it means for you to take responsibility in His world. Look, let me give you a couple of thoughts. There's been a bunch of people that have helped me along the way. Let me give you one New Testament theologian's version of this. And just let this wash over you for a second. Don't worry about figuring it out here. Stories, he says, are one of the most basic modes of human life. It is not the case that we perform random acts and then try to make sense of them. 
When people do that, we say that they're drunk or mad. Conversations in particular and human actions in general are nothing more, and here's this phrase, than enacted narratives. That is, the overall narrative is more is the more basic category, while the particular moment and person can only be considered understood within that context. Human life, then, can be seen as grounded in and constituted by the implicit or explicit stories which humans tell themselves and one another. Stories are a basic component of human life. They are, in fact, one key element within the total construction of your worldview. You know what I mean? He means by worldview, the way that you look at the world. When we examine how stories work in relation to other stories, we find that human beings tell stories because this is how we perceive and indeed the way we relate to the entire world. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying the way in which you understand everything around you, your relationships, your, your sense of mental awareness, your sanity, if you feel like you have any, <laughs> is going to be understood in the terms of a story. It's a story. Just like when your mama sat you down when you were a little bit of a baby and opened up a book and the first words out of her mouth were what? Once upon a time. And immediately you were captured. It sucked you right in. And you had to listen to what happened. Everything washed away as soon as a story came along. Why? Hold that thought. Uh, there's another guy by the name of Roy Anker who wrote a great book called Catching Light, uh, Looking for God in the Movies, which is a terrible subtitle for a really good book. Um, but he says that the same thing happens in movies. Why do movies move us the way in which it is? This is what he says. He says, we watch movies because we still have, running full force through us, the human appetite for story. The human appetite. On the most fundamental level, there is the pure pleasure of being told a story and of entertaining its possibilities, its mystery, its power. For some reason, we relish the sensation of losing ourselves in a tale of some kind, of being seduced away into another sort of reality, at least for a time. Have you ever had that experience where you've been into a movie that so carefully grasped your imagination that at the end of it, you kind of had to shake yourself and be like, okay, I'm a little freaked out. I need to go back out. What, what time is it? You know, where have I been? Good stories will always do that. Why? That's what I'm entertaining tonight. Last quote. This is from a guy by the name of Eugene Peterson, uh, who is a um, professor of um, what you would call practical theology at Regents Seminary in Vancouver, British Columbia, which nobody cares about. But I'm, that's just to let you know. You need to know the name of Eugene Peterson wrote a book called Christ Plays in 10,000 Places where he says this. He says, Story is the most natural way of enlarging and deepening our sense of reality and then enlisting us as participants in it. Stories open doors to areas or aspects of life that we didn't even know were there or had quit noticing out of over-familiarity or supposed were out of bounds to us. Then they welcome us in. Listen to this. It's a great line. Stories are verbal acts of hospitality. In other words, the way in which you feel engaged with someone or something or some idea is typically going to come to you in the form of a story, or so Eugene Peterson says. Look, what it means is, is that the story of our lives is always going to be the context for everything that happens to you. You are always looking at your world through some, can I use the word narrative? 
By narrative and story, I mean the same thing by that. And the thing is, these are very powerful things. They're the things that move us. They're the things that thrill us. And because they're the things that thrill us, they're also the things that change us. You will change your behavior in light of whatever story you are believing about yourself tonight. In other words, this is the way I've said it before in RUF, and some of you have heard me say this. Every one of you are living in a movie right now, of which you are the star. (laughs) And every story has a certain theme to it. Sometimes my story is a tragedy. It's very sad. Some people's stories are very sad. Sometimes my story is a comedy. I'm learning to laugh at myself and I'm bumbling along laughing through life. Sometimes it's an adventure where I've got a goal to reach, a mountain to climb, a, a, a task to get done. But we're always living with this narrative about ourselves that sets our reality for us. Your thoughts hang together in the form of a story. Your beliefs, the things that you say that you would write down and say, this is true are true to you because they came to you in a story that you found compelling. That's what psychiatrists are basically trying to pitch at you. Why? Well, I simply want to pitch it to you this way. The reason why we feel so strongly about story is because reality itself is a story. That's my only point that I want to make to you tonight, is reality is a story. In Christianity, one of the most fundamental aspects of Christianity is that human history is not random. We are headed towards an end, what the Greeks used to call a telos, a place to which we are aiming that helps us, that means that there's purpose to the universe. It means that we're going towards a resolution of a great divine drama that God is telling. And this instinct for story, therefore, is mapped, I would say very literally mapped, on your spiritual DNA. The thing that makes you who you are as a spiritual person comes to you in the form of a story. Um, Look, for many of you, you've actually... Now I've got to spend some time trying to prove that premise to you. That's where we're headed now. For some of you, you've actually found it very difficult to speak to people who are not as religious as you are. And you may be thinking to yourself, I'm not all that religious. Well, I don't know. It's the middle of the summer and you came to a Bible study on a Wednesday night. You're in the religious class, I promise you, whether you realize it or not. For a lot of us, though, we really struggle to defend our beliefs to those people who disagree with our beliefs. Have you had this experience yet where someone has challenged you and been like, why do you believe that? I think you're crazy. God, where is God? How do you make sense of evil in the world? Um, Any number of objections that people level against you, we oftentimes get very confused by that. But what I find so interesting is what's oftentimes much more compelling than kind of going toe-to-toe with someone theologically to sort of compare point to point and precept to precept. Oftentimes what has more power is when you look at them in the face and say, yeah, I don't know, let me just tell you what happened to me. You know, a number of years ago, and all of a sudden what are you doing? You're telling your story. And for a lot of people it suddenly becomes very compelling and you suddenly start to listen. Why is that? It very well may be because the universe is patterned in the form of a story. That when you tell your story, it immediately captures the imagination of the person you're talking to. 
I'm interested in that. Now, look, I'm saying that as, as a professional theologian. <laughs> uh, the sort of point-counterpoint thing is it's sort of what I do. <laughs> it's in the job description. I'm not denying that that's important. I'm simply saying that all of those truths need to hang together in the idea of a story. So here's my question to you. If somebody looked at you and said, um, what is the Bible about? What is Christianity's story? Now, I recognize that as soon as I say that, you've got a lot of people that will go in a a bunch of different directions I don't want you to go in. (laughs) For some people, they want to look at Christianity as being a bunch of made-up stories. They are myths in the same way that, you know, uh, the Greeks and the Romans had their various deities that they wrote stories about to sort of fit their particular emotional or cultural fancy at that time. That's not what we mean when we talk about Christianity being a story. Um, but there's something about the fact that in your time, you've grown up in, an, in, in a realm where most of the contact that you've had with religious thinking has come to you purely in these abstract ideas. Well, what do you believe? Well, I believe in point A, point B, point C, and we go through our things and hope that somebody doesn't ask us any questions about why we believe those things, right? But it's interesting to me that for, for people that never leave that realm, faith can be very, very fragile. Because as soon as somebody comes along to college and you have a professor that starts to question some of these little factoids that you've grabbed on over the years, the whole system collapses. And people actually end up denying the faith and leaving the faith and going in directions they never intended in going. Why? In my opinion, it's because it never got... Those facts were purely abstractions. So God himself was nothing more than an abstraction. Getting to to grasp Christianity as a story will assist you in actually owning it and having it suddenly become, dare I use the word, real to you. That's what I'm trying to pitch to you this this, uh, summer. Um, Christianity is a great collection of gloriously true abstract truths. I'm not denying that. But it's also a story. Both of those two things are true at the same time. And nobody understood this better than C.S. Lewis. I would commend to you a little collection of C.S. Lewis's essays called God in the Dock. You can get it at Square Books or any of the bookstores here in town. We'll have this. One of his more famous collection of essays. And in that collection of essays, there's one essay called Myth Became Fact. And I'm going to trade the word that Lewis is using, myth, for the word story. And listen to this, this uh, uh, quote here. He says, Now, in the same way that story transcends thought, incarnation transcends story. The heart of Christianity is a story, but it's a story that's also a fact. The old story of the dying God, without ceasing to be story, comes down from heaven of legend and imagination into the heart of history itself. It happens (laughs) at a particular date, in a particular place, followed by definable historical consequences. We pass from a balder or an Osiris, dying nobody knows when or where, to a historical person crucified, and what do we always say in the Apostles' Creed? Under Pontius Pilate. In other words, we affirm the fact that Jesus was crucified at a particular place in time, that God entered into our story, By becoming fact, it does not cease to be a story, and that is the miracle of Christianity. 
I suspect that there's been lots of men who have derived more spiritual sustenance from stories that they did not believe than from the religion that they actually professed. Did you catch this? That's, that was the line that grabbed me. There's a lot of people who actually gained more benefit, spiritually speaking, listening to stories that they thought themselves were actually not true and just made up fairy stories than from the actual doctrines that they were able to list and, tr- and say were true. Look, y'all, that is the story of an old Miss person. Because coming to school here means adopting a certain story, a certain narrative line about who you are, what is important in the world, why you are or are not valuable, who is in and who is out of your particular social sphere. Those things function on the basis of the story that you're believing at that time. And so what Lewis is saying is is that in Christianity, you have the intersection of a story that's not like some made-up make-believe thing. It really happened. And both of those are true. It's fact and it's story. And you put those two things together and suddenly you have the genius of Christianity. All right. So open up. Uh, Open up in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. What does it say? Like every good story starts with once upon a time, Genesis says, in the beginning. Here's where it starts. In other words, I'm ready to start unfolding to you an actual story where everything started. Now look, I recognize that there has been an ocean of discussion. You may not actually understand this. It's not either here nor there. There's a lot of people that struggle with whether or not Genesis chapter 1 is what we can call actual history. And one of the reasons why people doubt that about Genesis chapter 1 is because there really are certain what I would call... um, artistic devices or maybe we could use literary devices that are being employed in Genesis chapter 1. Um, uh, But I hope that you'll see now that that doesn't mean that just because those things aren't necessarily describing what we would call as chronological history, they can't be true. (laughs) Uh, There's all kinds of events in life that can be very artistic uh, and, and complex. So what's the point of this story though? Well, you got it in the first two verses that Whitney read for us. Number one, the story begins with chaos. That's the beginning. And we open up with formlessness and void. In other words, there's chaotic creation. There is no order to creation. Everything is madness. Everything is spread all over the map. Honestly, things prior to God entering it were crazy. They were disordered. They were ugly. Right? They had no beauty to them. They were, they, they, they were disjointed. There was no beauty there. Uh, emptiness, meaninglessness. Look, y'all, in Genesis chapter 1, you have described what you often feel when you get to those low points during the semester. Come on. None of y'all had years last year that you can look back and say that you never entered any dark periods. Sometimes school can be a very dark place for you. You're burdened with pressures of relationships, pressures of schoolwork, spiritual pressures, and the list goes on and on. And we get to a point where we look and say, I don't know if any of this matters. I don't know if I matter. That is the, the carrying call of formlessness and void constantly invading our human story. That we look around us and we say, you know what, this doesn't mean anything. Everything is chaotic. Nothing means anything. Why should I even go on living? Look, y'all, you're naive if you don't think that your friends have not faced that very thing. It happens all the time uh, in the midst of people. But, 
Now, here's the counterpoint. Chaos, void, meaninglessness, but guess what was happening? The Spirit of God was there. And you know what he was doing? He was hovering. That's actually a really good translation of the Hebrew word that you have translated there, is that the Spirit of God was hovering. It was there. It was exuding. Some of your translations would say, was brooding. It was hanging over in the midst of that very thing. And in my opinion, in the first two verses of the Bible, you've got the story of the Bible. Did you catch it? (laughs) We have a God who comes in and marches into chaos and emptiness and basically tries to bring about order. How does he do it? He starts to speak. There's chaos in the life of every human person. But you know what? The Spirit of God is hovering. Um, Look, imagine how encouraging this must have been to these ancient Israelites just freshly let out of Egypt, right? Looking at a world that is absolutely unknown. They have been in slavery for 400 years, okay? Find some African-American friends that you have and talk to them about the stories that were passed down about what it was like to live in American history for 100 years of slavery. But imagine 400 years of slavery, what that does to the psychology, if you will, And you'll see what they were facing. It looked formless. It looked void. It looked terrifying. And all of a sudden, God's story says, but Spirit of God is hovering. There's emptiness, chaos, but God is moving. And what we find is that God's hovering results in a symphony of creation. God brings about order. He brings about beauty. He brings about life where there was death. And in the first three days, we see God dealing with the, promise of form, the problem of formless, formlessness in God creating what we would call forms. He says there's light and dark that He creates. He creates land and air on the second day. He creates dry land and plants on the third day. But then after that, He deals in the last three days with the void by filling those forms, right? By saying sun and moon will fill up the light and dark. Birds and fish will fill up the land and air. Animals and man will function with the land and the plants. In other words, there is dealing with the formlessness, he creates forms, and dealing with the void, he fills them up with things. Does that make sense? There's a framework that exists there. In other words, the business of God's universe is to march out into the universe and bring order where there once was chaos, to bring light where there once was ugliness and dark. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien uh, once wrote a letter to his son about the Garden of Eden. uh, And he said this. He said, I don't now feel either ashamed or dubious on the Eden myth. And he put myth in quotes. It is not, of course, the historicity of the same kind as the New Testament, which are virtually contemporary documents. While Genesis is separated by what we do not know and how many, by what we, excuse me, speak for a living, Uh, by we do not know how many sad exiled generations from the fall, but certainly there was an Eden on this very unhappy earth. We all long for it, and we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most humane, is still soaked with a sense of exile. Did you catch that? That is really well said. Your humanity is soaked with a sense of homelessness. I don't know about you. Some of you may be suffering from homesickness right now, for all I know. But what is, it, what is it about homesickness when it's suddenly not just about being sick for home, but realizing 
I'm not sure I can even go back to home home. Wait a minute. Where do I belong? You want to talk about emotional and spiritual vertigo? That'll freak you out. That'll mess you up. <laughs> I know a lot of people who come to college and it really messes them up and they spin out into all kinds of moral failure. That's why college happens the way that it does for a lot of people. Because we're longing. We know we're in exile. We feel the chaos. And we want to go home. Look, but for our purposes tonight, I want you simply to pitch to you, and I'll finish with this, that this is still true. Nothing has changed in terms of God's design for His purpose of creation. We worship a God who is a king and who is establishing His kingdom. His human representatives are there to live for His glory in the theater of creation. And we're there to actually push upon the world what God wants us to do. This is how it says in verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. In other words, the task of every person in this room who calls himself a Christian is to mine the universe for all the glory that is there and to march into chaos wherever it might be found, and to work it into a lovely, beautiful, and orderly picture. That, if you're going to be a Christian, (laughs) is your story. That's your story. Now here's my question for you. How foreign does that feel? How foreign does it feel to you to look and to be like, okay, as a Christian, okay, I live in a world that's full of chaos. Mm Hmm... I don't have to look that long to realize that. I can feel the chaos in my own heart. And my job is to go out there and to relieve that chaos. How foreign is that to you? Does that ring true to you? Because it's the Bible's recommendation. It comes to you and looks and says, this is the remedy for a culture that is so bored with itself that it's pitiful. In other words, Christians ought to be the ones that come and say, look, there is beauty out there. History is headed someplace. There's purpose. There's meaning. This story actually has a point, right? And honestly, we're, we're, there to, we're there to begin it right now. Not one day in heaven when we die. It's not when the story begins. The story begins at the moment that you begin to see God's world working in us. It also means that we understand the purpose of our salvation. We're here to fix this world. Do you see the things that you do day in and day out, even something as horrible as summer school? Summer school. What a wicked creation. You know, who would ever have created such a thing as summer school? But do I understand why I'm doing it? That feeds into a larger story about myself that I'm in the midst of. My movie is God's movie. (laughs) And in the coming weeks, we're going to look at his character development. We're going to look at the main plot lines. We're going to look at the antagonist to the plot. Genesis chapter 3. And we're suddenly going to look at the, uh, the, uh, uh, the resolution of the story in the rest of the week. In other words, we're going to look and see what is God's story uh, about me. Well, can I finish with one more story from, from Lord of the Rings? One more little scene. It's another one of my favorite scenes. After all of the great battles are over, uh, all of the characters sort of find themselves in the great um, city of Gondor. Um, and I've just gone blank. What's the, what's the platform to city? Minus Tirith. Minus Tirith. That's right. That's right. Thank you very much. Um, and they're all there, but there's, there's a lot of wounded people. That's good to get the Lord of the Rings people out. I just drew you right out, suckers. Now we know who you are. That's exactly right. Um, 
But all of a sudden we find that there's a lot of wounded, especially people that you come to love a lot, uh, um, uh, Aylmer and uh, especially um, uh, 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 Faramir. Faramir is the one who's wounded. Isn't that right? You know I'm getting ready to read about? Yes. Absolutely. Uh, anyway, they're wounded and they're, and they're next to death. And here's what happens when Gandalf finally shows up. Then hope unlooked for came so suddenly to Aylmer's heart. And with, the bite, and with it the bite of care and fear renewed, that he, said, that he said no more, but turned and went swiftly from the hall. And the prince followed him. And when they came forth, evening had fallen and many stars were in the sky. And there came Gandalf on foot. And with him... One cloaked in gray. And they met before the doors of the houses of healing. And they greeted Gandalf and said, We seek the steward. The steward was the king of the city in Minas Tirith. And men say that he is in this house. Has any hurt befallen him? And the lady Eowyn, where is she? Gandalf answered, She lies within and is not dead, but is near death. But the Lord Faramir was wounded by an evil dart, as you have heard. And she is now the steward, for Denethor has departed, and his house is in ashes. And they were filled with grief and wonder at the tale that he told. But Imrahil said, So victory is shorn of gladness, and it is better brought if both Gondor and Rohan are in one day bereft of their lords. Aomer rules the Rohirrim. Who shall rule the city meanwhile? Shall we not now send for the Lord Aragorn? And the cloaked man spoke and said, He is come. And they saw as he stepped into the light of the lantern by the door that it was Aragorn, wrapped in the gray cloak of Lorien above his mail and bearing no other token than the green stone of Galadriel. Then Gandalf said, Let us not stay at the door, for the time is urgent. Let us enter, for it is only in the coming of Aragorn that any hope remains for the sick that lie in that house. Thus spake Eorath, Wise woman of Gondor, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. Now why is it those kinds of stories stir us? Maybe it's because they're true. Maybe the reason why we get excited about the fact that the king rides in and saves the people is because those stories are true. It's because that's the story that God is telling, that human history is itself a living part of, that we're all in the midst of that. Begin to unpack your story and you'll open up areas of understanding and application of the Bible that I don't think you could understand before. Okay, questions or thoughts?